This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. This is the Elections 2020 edition of Maine Currents, and I'm joined by my regular guests, Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the University of Maine's Political Science Department, and Ralph Chapman, former state representative. We're also joined today by most of the people who will be challenging Susan Collins for her Senate seat, Democrats Betsy Sweet and Bree Kidman, Maine Green Independent Lisa Savage, and Independent Tiffany Bond. Sarah Gideon was not available to join us today. I'm going to start by asking each of the candidates to introduce themselves and say why they are running, extra credit if they can also work in a bit about uh, how they believe they can defeat Susan Collins. And this is a little bit of a speed round with five minutes each. I'm going to pick a name to see who goes first. Bree Kidman. I'll start watching the time. Go ahead, Bree. Introduce so yourself much. and why you're in the race. Yeah, so my name is Bree Kidman. Um, I am an artist, an activist, and an attorney. Um, I work as the equivalent of a public defender. Um, and I'm running for Susan Collins' seat. Um, and it's kind of odd because I'm not the kind of person who, I mean, I, I never thought I would run for office. Um, you know, I'm non-binary. Um, I'm an artist. I'm kind of non-traditional. And I thought people like me don't get to do this. Um, and that changed when I went to DC for the Kavanaugh hearing. Um, the Kavanaugh confirmation was happening and um, I'm a survivor. And I went down to DC to try and meet with Senator Collins after a number of failed attempts at like calling, emailing, trying to engage with her. Um, and at the end of it, um, I wound up meeting with a staffer who couldn't even tell me like why she was going to make the decision that she was going to make. You know, I asked, you know, can you just tell me what her rationale was? And I got, she's got a lot to think about. And I said, can you tell me what some of those things are? And it was just, she's got a lot to think about. So I came back and that was two years ago now. And I started thinking like, what is she thinking about? What, why can't she talk about it? And the further I got down that pipeline, the further I realized, you know, um, these decisions and this obfuscation, all of it comes down to the money in our political system. And so um, I decided to try and do something about it. <laughs> um, so as a candidate, I haven't taken any PAC money, no corporate PAC money, no ideological PAC money, no leadership PAC money, literally none. And I stopped actively fundraising in July of last year um, because, you know, as I gained a little bit of seed money, I thought like, maybe it makes more sense to find a way to make the selections process work for us. Right now, um, you know, in this race already, we're talking about $5 million to expand coronavirus testing in Maine. More than double that was spent in the last quarter on advertising. Um, so um, I think that I am uh, the best person to beat Susan Collins because um, I'm playing a game that she wouldn't even think to play. Um, what we're doing instead of, you know, buying advertising and buying donor lists is uh, using the seed money that we have to get relief to mayors who are struggling. Um, I believe that we need to put the service back in public service. Um, and that's what I've been trying to do throughout this campaign. Um, I have federal policy experience. I worked at the National Center for Transgender Equality. Um, I have state policy experience. I worked at Maine's Permanent Commission on the Status of Women. Um, and um, I think, you know, my campaign has been referred to as a long shot throughout the process, right? Like I'm, I'm under no illusions that I'm the front runner in this race. Um, but I guess what I'm asking people kind of as I go along the campaign trail is why is that? Why do we think that the person with the most money is the person who is most likely to be on our team? <laughs> why is it that the person who's raised the most money and spends the most money on advertising is the most likely to advocate for our interests? Because the further you follow that trail down, 
um, the more that you see that um, that money comes from someplace. It comes from a profit system that um, that gains money off of things like making sure we get as little healthcare for our dollar as possible, or um, you know, making sure that nobody's really advocating uh, to change the way that prescription drugs are priced or to change the way that fossil fuels are subsidized in this country. And so um, my kind of promise as a candidate is that um, none of those issues that kind of get batted around um, in commercials um, and kind of obscured by oblique language, like none of those issues can really sway me because I don't owe anybody anything. All right. Thank you, Bree. That was Bree Kidman. And let's see, I'll pull another name. Tiffany Bond. You're up. Great. So, hey, I'm um, Tiffany Bond. I've run for office once before. I ran in 2018. And what created that situation is the same thing that the same situation I'm against now. There is someone in office who is making my job harder. I am a family law attorney, and that cuts across a lot of federal law. I also do some limited defense work uh, like Brie, but not as much as they do. So a lot of federal law, from TANF to food stamps to healthcare to how we handle student loans to retirement accounts to how businesses uh, interact with the federal government to taxes, all of that cuts through and ha is hit in family law. And uh, when I ran in 2018, there was a gentleman who was voting for things that made it much harder to separate families, particularly in rural Maine, because it's a less moneyed area of the state. And I would divide families in two and say there just isn't enough. You know, sorry, mom, you don't get health care. Sorry, dad, you don't qualify for food stamps, even though you're giving all your money to mom. Um, bummer. <laughs> you can't survive. And we're looking at a lot of the things that we're doing wrong. Um, for example, we spend more money trying to prevent fraud while making people stressed out that they can't access resources than the actual fraud that we would prevent if we just allowed people access to resources. And that's just not simply getting addressed. You know, we have, a, we have an unhealthy, dysfunctional relationship with our government. Our government has become the abusive significant other, and it shouldn't be. We shouldn't be begging the government to, uh, to help us when we've paid in the funds to do it. They should be our partner. And right now, we have an unhealthy marriage with our government. So I'd like to change that. Um, when I ran in 2018, I kept getting told by people, in fact, maybe Amy, uh, that you cannot run a campaign without taking money. You can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. You have to take money, you have to run ads. And I just think that's fundamentally wrong. I think that the money in our relationship with government creates a very toxic environment for campaigns. So I came up with ways to do it instead. So I replace things. So for example, the environment is very important to me. Campaign signs are horrible for the environment and they're very expensive and you have to go collect them, which is also annoying. Well, instead of campaign signs, I said, let's not spend any of that money. You can go online, you can download a sign, you can tape it in the window of your car or your home, you still are getting the message out, you can recycle it at the end of the year, boom, we just saved half a million dollars right there, and we made it a lot easier. And you, you know, if you want to be crafty, my husband uses the recycled signs to start our barbecue. So you, you can really reuse that piece of paper a few times, and it's a lot better for everyone. The, the biggest nut, of course, is like, how do you, how do you get rid of the ads. And the way that I think that I beat Susan Collins is if anybody has a screen anywhere right now, you're probably already done with the ads. I'm done with the ads. I have my children at home 
Um, they're watching videos for school and they're getting ads about the campaign cycle. I mean, that's, it's just awful. And it's every single video. Um, my husband and I tried to watch the news yesterday. We saw seven of the same commercial in less than half an hour. It was, it was awful. Um, and I'm just not going to do that. I think by the time we get to November, everybody is going to be incredibly frustrated with the ads and not open to the message. And I think they will be more of a harm than a good. And in fact, I think in this uh, ad cycle, we're going to hit an inverse relationship between the amount of spend and the efficacy of those dollars. So what I do instead of fundraising is I do main raising. I ask people to take the same amount of money they would like to give to my campaign, whether it's $25 or $2,500, and invest that money in our community. So send it to a not-for-profit, send it to a domestic violence shelter, spend it at a small business, and when you contribute that or when you purchase, leave a note that says Tiffany Bond is running for Senate and won't take my money. So I am investing in the community. Please look her up. And I think that's just a more productive way to use those dollars in politics. So I think quarter one of this year, about $10 million was raised for this race. What would $10 million do for our not-for-profits? What would $10 million do for our small business community? You could actually change the way our communities work and, and have a healthy relationship with politics. So that is what I, uh, I'm out to do. I, I'm running a very low dollar campaign. I've spent about $500 so far. It's meant for online because I'm asking people all over who are frustrated with Susan Collins to please invest in Maine's community and tell them to look me up. So um, I think that's a, a, a very novel and productive and healthy way to beat her. So look me up online. I'm easiest to find at Twitter. Um, I'm at Tiffany Bond. Thank you. Thanks. And that was precisely five minutes. That was great. I will, uh, if you're starting to run out of time, I'll sort of wave my hand and let you know that you're coming up against your five minutes. All right, let's see who's next. Next up, Lisa Savage, please. Thanks, Amy, and thanks everyone for being here. I'm Lisa Savage. I'm running for the U.S. Senate seat of Susan Collins under ranked choice voting. I was a Green Independent, as Amy introduced me. However, it was so difficult, in fact, impossible to attain ballot access as a Green that I was forced to unenroll from the Green Party and gain ballot access as an Independent category. Now I call myself an Independent Green. My platform hasn't changed. My values haven't changed. And in fact, my campaign volunteers collected over 9,000 signatures in one day to get me on the ballot as an independent. So I am a retiring school teacher. I'm just now retiring from 25 years teaching in rural Maine. I've been a reading interventionist the last few years at a, a school in a very, very low income part of Maine and watching even long before the pandemic, the families of the children that I worked with struggling to survive in an economy basically designed for them to fail. Even those well enough to work with a job or two jobs or three jobs and a car to get to those jobs were barely, barely making it, <clears throat> excuse me, economically. And they were just one accident, one mistake, one illness away from their whole economic house of cards collapsing. Now that the pandemic's hit, we can see uh, the glaring gaps in uh, in uh, income inequality, the lack of uh, Medicare for all or any kind of single payer universal health care has been catastrophic. So I was very motivated to uh, run for this seat because I see the people that live around me in Maine really, really struggling. And I don't feel that they have much voice in Congress. The people that uh, 
are elected to represent them take huge amounts of money from lobbyists and corporations and corporate super PACs that launder the money of corporations, and then they write legislation that serves those people rather than serving their constituents, and I think that's a big problem. Um, uh, I also, um, besides Medicare for All, I, I'm in favor of a demilitarized Green New Deal, by which I mean that we need to defund the Pentagon, which is a, a big driver of climate uh, change, and we need to reinvest that money in creating good union jobs. In fact, it would create far more good union jobs if we would invest in building things that we actually need instead of weapon systems that are very polluting and um, not very good jobs programs, just in terms of how many jobs they create. I'm also been very concerned about the student debt crisis. I know that Maine students have a higher than average debt load. Um, I don't think that anyone needs to come out of a, going to a state university or a community college and, with a big uh, a lot of debt that they're going to carry for the next you know, decade or two or three and be unable to really get a start in life um, being able to, you know, uh, build a house, start a family, start a business, uh, engage in meaningful work. If you're dragging that kind of debt that you signed on to when you were maybe 19 years old, that is crazy. Who wrote that bill in Congress that even if they declare bankruptcy, they can't get out from under that? Um, I've held elected office before as a union official. I was a vice president, chief negotiator of my teacher's local bargaining unit for several years. And um, I'm also a grandmother and I care very much about the kind of world that my grandchildren will be inheriting. I'm worried about it. I always thought climate change was the biggest security risk that we were faced with, and now I realize that, well, uh, it could be a, a public health crisis also. It is a big security risk. Um, imagining enemies and creating our own enemies to fight them, basically so that Pentagon contractors can become uber wealthy is not a good use of the U.S. taxpayers' hard-earned dollar, and I'm motivated to uh, go to Congress, go to the U.S. Senate, and be a voice for the people of Maine. I think they deserve one. Um, my family's been very supportive. I have three grown children. Uh, my sisters, my uncle, my sons all encouraged me and said, Mom, this is a great next step for you to go on from. Um, I've been organizing anti-war, climate, and militarism, and also been involved in some racial justice um, efforts as an ally with Wabanaki people and uh, with Surge. Uh, standing up for race, showing up for racial justice. So I've, I've been involved in political life quite a bit since my children left home. And um, this just seemed like a good next step. It's an opportunity where we have a very, very unpopular incumbent. I live in the second district. We got rid of a very unpopular conservative incumbent in Bruce Poliquin um, through ranked choice voting. And ranked choice voting is the real game changer. So it's really exciting for me to be here with all the most progressive candidates in this race. Um, I think it's sad that the others won't come into these forums and these discussions, but I always enjoy getting together with uh, these women. They have a lot of good ideas. I, I learn from them, and um, I really thank you for inviting me to be here today, Amy. Thank you, Lisa. And last but not least, Betsy Sweet. Thanks, Amy, and thanks to everybody listening, and to thanks to my amazing colleagues who are running and uh, taking a step forward to do this. So I am Betsy Sweet. Um, I'm a candidate for the U.S. Senate. I have been an advocate in Maine for 37 years, and I also was a candidate for governor um, two years ago. And I'm running because I think we're in trouble. I thought we were in trouble before this pandemic, and now I think our house is on fire. And we have got to do things. We have got to get things done in a big way. We can't be settled. We can't settle anymore for half measures. 
We can't settle for ideas that just nibble around the edges of what our problems are. This pandemic has exposed in dramatic fashion the core holes that are in our system and the, and the sand on which the foundation, the crumbling foundation on which so many of our economic and political and social structures have been built. And so I think it is time to get big things done. When we have 50,000 Mainers who just in the last six weeks have not only lost their jobs, but lost their health insurance because they're connected to their jobs, we have got to do something about healthcare. When we see what's happening to our economy because of what's happening to the climate, because not just because we love to be outdoors and all of that, but because of our fisheries. Our fisheries are disappearing because, the, we, because of our warming ocean. Our forestry industry is disappearing because of what's happening to the trees. Our agriculture industry is disappearing because of the pests and what's happening in our, our, at, on, in our farming industry. So we have to take on big issues. And now is the time. We need Medicare for all. We need a Green New Deal. We need to eliminate student debt and give education through college and technical school free to all of our students and all of our people across this country. And as everyone has said, we have need to get money out of politics. We don't hold elections anymore. We hold auctions and auctions go to the highest bidder. And newsflash, we, you and I, and the people listening to this, we are not the highest bidders. So it is not what we need that Congress is working on. It's what those bidders need, those high bidders. And we already know. I have 30 years of legislative experience, 37 years of le legislative experience, getting big things done. Things that people said when we started out, not possible, never gonna happen. And those things include writing the first Family Medical Leave Act in the country to make sure that people who had to care for their loved ones at home because they were sick, didn't lose their job. And then that law in Maine that we were the first in the country to do then became the model for the national legislation. And now we're working towards paid family leave so everyone can take advantage of it. A clean election system, a public financing system paired with small donors that only Maine was able to do. Maine and Arizona followed us. But to get money out of our system, to get money to allow people like us, the four of us on this thing, on this call, to be able to run and to be able to be representatives in Washington from a different perspective, from a lived experience that's different from a millionaire or someone with incredible means. That, you know, and I think that um, I have worked on every single state budget for the last 37 years. So I know how to pass legislation, I know how to bring people together, but I have not been part of the broken system that I think is leading us down a path that is not sustainable, that does not represent the needs of what Maine needs and what we want. So it is time to do big things. It is time to do bold things. I think we need to put the go back into government. So it is not just uh, stalling and why we can't do things and why we should wait. We, if we know anything from this pandemic, we know we cannot wait. Our security is threatened. Our livelihoods are threatened. Our economic systems are threatened. And not only do we need to reopen Maine and the rest of the country, we need to reimagine it. And we can't reimagine a new future if we are not willing to think big and outside the box. And that's what I've done for the last 37 years. And that's why I think I'm the candidate that can win this race. Great, thank you, Betsy Sweet. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. We are taping this via Zoom on Friday. And you just heard all of the um, candidates that are joining us today introduce themselves. We also have our regular elections 2020 series uh, regular guests with us, Professor Amy Freed and former state representative Ralph Chapman. And next, I'm going to toss it to them to ask questions. So, uh, Amy Freed, would you like to go uh, first? 
Sure, and it is really exciting to to be here with this wonderful uh, group of candidates with so much energy and so much passion um, and so much interested in making the world better. Um, the The way I was thinking of asking questions actually was dividing it perhaps uh, with asking a question to the two candidates who are running in the primary and then uh, the two independent candidates, if, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so of um, Betsy and Bree, uh, you know, something that you know well from the political work that you've done already is that the American political system is one where you really need to build coalitions. It's, it's, uh, whether that's within a political party or between political parties, you have to bring people together who could have very different points of view about problems and what is a, even a problem and how to solve a problem. So could you talk a little bit about a situation when you brought people together to craft a solution to a policy problem um, and you know, talk about it with some specifics, but also talk about the kind of skills that shows that, that you possess? Sure, well, I'll, I'll be happy to start. Um, so, you know, as I said, I've been an advocate for 37 years, and the only way I've gotten anything done is to bring people together. Because the clients that I represent don't have money to play in politics, they don't have money to play in elections, they don't have big power, but what we have is information and the people of Maine that we serve. So, and for, let's take clean aggressions, for example. We were told from the day one, this will never pass. You can never get the, the people who got there without it you know, to pass this. But what we did was actually did the research to show people the information of when a vote was taken, the money was raised, and the vote was changed. And when we, people were faced with that, it was like, oh, yeah, 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 we've got to do something. So we brought Republicans together who thought that was bad, and Democrats who were together who thought that was bad, along with a huge number of people in, in the um, outside world who weren't in politics, who know that money is corrupting our system. And we were able to appeal to those common values of what's just and what's right and what democracy is about and bring them together. And I would say that I have made a career out of bringing people together. You know, we started the Women's Legislative Agenda Coalition when we realized that one organization was not going to be able to do it. We started the Dirigo Alliance to bring progressive organizations together when we were being divided and conquered and we had to put forward a legislative agenda and an electoral strategy that was going to get progressives put um, back together. You know, we, we, uh, Maine can do better when we had a Democratic governor who put forward a budget that was full of cuts in social services and allowed untouched um, corporate money to stay. So it's, it's, it is bringing people together in which we put our collective power. And I think in terms of working across the aisle, I think in Maine, we are not divided by right and left. We are divided between us and the political establishment. We have incredibly shared values. Just look at the referendums we passed by big margins. And it's really appealing to those core values that I think gives us the opportunity to build coalitions and to actually get forward, get forward movement and get things done. Thank you. So, <clears throat> I have to be careful in the way that I talk about this because it's actually, it's a lawyering experience. Um, and so um, I was, um, I was part of a coalition of defense attorneys who were representing a group of protesters. Um, and so defense attorneys are often thought of kind of as like a, a, a left branch of, um, 
you know, of kind of politically minded people. But in Maine, that's very much not the case. In Maine, like there's a wide span of people who practice criminal defense. Um, and, you know, all of the people who were on board with this were more or less on board with what the protesters were saying. Um, but so this group of protesters um, wanted to use their criminal case kind of as an opportunity to forward their movement. It wasn't so much about um, you know, whether or not they were going to get criminal charges or what their criminal consequences were going to be. For the most part, you know, this group of people, some people having um, more or less severe consequences on the line, but most of this group of people mostly just wanted to use this process to get their message out. And so um, you have that in contrast with, you know, 17 or 19 lawyers, all of whom have different ideas about what criminal events is supposed to be. And you have this group of 17 or 19 protesters, um, all of whom have, you know, more or less the same idea that kind of is in stark contrast with what these lawyers are trained to do. And um, to make it somewhat more complicated, um, I had been a lawyer for about five minutes at this point. Um, and a lot of the protesters were people that I knew from my activism in the community. <laughs> So um, I wound up in a position where I was the go-between between this group um, and kind of balancing the concerns as a new lawyer of making sure that I was following, you know, the ethical guidelines that you need to do to get good outcomes for your client with the idea that these protesters were like, no, make as much noise as possible. Like, <laughs> we want to make noise. We want to get attention. Um, you know, there was news articles about a judge that walked off the bench um, in the middle of, um, of a dispositional conference. Um, it was wild. Um, and... Um, I think we balance those concerns really well. At the end of the day, those protesters all walked away with no criminal record from this particular incident. Um, but, you know, we did get news. We did get attention. Um, you know, I, I wound up on the stand as a witness, um, you know, <laughs> kind of saying what the protesters wanted said. Um, and I think, you know, the, the kind of takeaway from that is that um, I'm the kind of person who is interested in learning the procedure and then using the procedure to its greatest possible impact. Um, you know, we're all going to have different sets of rules that we have to follow in our lives or in anything that we do in order to get what we're doing done. So as a senator, you know, there's, there's a ton of procedural rules. Um, and my thing is, okay, let me learn all the rules so that I can figure out how to break them most effectively. Um, and I think that that makes for good coalition. Once you know how to use the system well, um, you find people with similar aims and you figure out what your, what your common denominator is and then you go at it. Great. Thanks very much. Um, and um, the, the question I had for uh, Tiffany and, and Lisa relates to you both being independent candidates, or as Lisa described it, an independent green candidate. Um, and so, you know, we're really in this remarkable position this year of having the first U.S. Senate race that's using ranked choice voting, which... Um, you know, can change this race in various ways, including giving more of a possibility for an independent candidate to win the race outright. So um, I, I have a two-part question. One is, um, in running, will you be asking your supporters to rank candidates a particular way because it's ranked choice? And if you were elected, do you foresee yourself caucusing with a particular political party? Who do you want to direct that to first, Amy? Um, I don't know. Maybe I have Tiffany on my left on the screen, so I'll ask Tiffany to go Tiffany first. Bond. <laughs> well, I think Amy Freeze asked me part of this question before. So um, I do ask people with ranked choice voting, I say, please rank everybody you find palatable. I think it's really important that we use ranked choice voting to um, 
to take the money out of it and put the preference in it. One, one of the things that broke my heart in 2018 is I had people that ideologically I knew were right there with me. We were in the same space, but they voted with the money. And in ranked choice voting, you don't have to do that. You can say, you know, maybe you're not my party or maybe you were both independent, um, but you seem very reasonable. You have the ideas that align with my philosophical beliefs. We're not going to agree on everything, but you seem like a really reasonable person that would put a lot of thought into how you make your decisions. You can vote based on that. You know, you can put the money last in this particular race, which is awesome because I think the money is going to overwhelm all of us in a tsunami. And so I do ask people to rank. I ask people if they don't want to rank me first to be open to the possibility that they might enjoy voting for me and might enjoy my point of view. And I actually have any of my volunteers, um, you know, not when they're main raising, but when they're talking to friends, I say, please use the other candidates that is an example. You know, Tiffany is good at this, but, you know, Lisa's also really concerned with the environment. So you might want to consider her as your number two. And I ask them to go through and um, not just discuss me, but discuss the race, discuss how we want elections to be. So I think it allows voters and canvassers and just people who are interested to have a more rich, full perspective about the election and to consider candidates more thoroughly without having to say you can only pick one. Um, as far as caucusing, I have a different perspective than a lot of people do on caucusing because I'm an independent. And so I think the caucus is where the conversation is, but not necessarily related to the vote. I think if you're in a party, there's a lot of pressure to vote always with your party. To me, it's just where you're talking. And I'm also a professional mediator, and that's kind of what it is there, too. It's just where you're talking. So I think that as an independent not having a party, it's sort of my responsibility to be where the conversation is. I would, um, if I could not determine the majority, I would caucus with the majority um, just because I want to see what they're doing. I want to know what the likely law is to pass and I want to keep an eye on them. I think that's really important. Um, I don't think it's going to have any relationship at all to how I think we should, um, we should be voting. Uh, my vote won't change regardless. Um, and I know that that's a different position and has some risk with it, but I think we should try different things. Thank you. So uh, the first part of the question is, will I be encouraging supporters is, to rank? This is Lisa Savage. Let's just make sure we introduce everybody oh, at the beginning okay. so the listeners will know. Lisa Savage speaking now. Thanks, Sorry. Amy. Um, it, well, I'll tell a little story. Um, some of you have heard me tell this story before. During First Friday, uh, Betsy Sweet and I encountered each other in Portland in a, uh, the Portland Media Center, and uh, Betsy's sister asked me to sign her uh, ballot access petition because she didn't recognize me, and later she apologized. But uh, when Betsy caught sight of me in the crowd, she came over and gave me a big hug back when we could give people big hugs, and she said, isn't ranked choice voting great? We can be friends. Because, of course, the things that Betsy's been working for all her life and the policies that she stands for and promotes are very you know, close to the ones that I also uphold. Uh, um, it's impossible for me to say, what I would be asking my uh, followers or voters to do in the election, though, because I don't know who else is going to be on the ballot. Uh, we don't know who will get the Democratic nomination, um, even though some people act like they know who will. And um, so it's pretty hard for me to decide now. I do think, though, that it's pretty safe to say that anyone who gave me their number one vote would be very unlikely to rank Susan Collins number two and that anybody who gave whoever the Democrats nominate their number one vote would be very unlikely to rank Susan Collins number two. So if I uh, think about the spirit of your question, Amy uh, Freed, it is, um, do we 
expand our view of how we approach electoral politics when there is a ranked choice voting uh, ballot before us? And I think the answer is very much yes. We also know from exit polls that a strong progressive in a race will pull voters out to vote that will tell uh, exit polls, I wouldn't have voted if it were just a couple of corporate centrist candidates. I came out to vote for that progressive candidate. In a ranked choice race, that can have a big effect because there they are at the polls. And, you know, I think uh, many people in Maine don't understand ranked choice voting super well yet. I think this is going to be a very educational race in that sense. Some people seem to feel you have to rank everyone. Well, you don't. And you could just vote for your first choice and not fill in the rest of the ballot. Um, so as far as caucusing, again, it's very hard for me to answer that question without knowing exactly who um, will be available to caucus with. Of course, our other senator, uh, Senator Angus King, is an independent, usually caucuses with Democrats. Um, I am sometimes asked the somewhat silly question, on your first day in the Senate, what would you do? You know, I'm older. I've had lots of jobs. Before I was a school teacher for 25 years, I owned a small business in Maine for several years, and I've had office jobs. And, you know, the first day on the job, you learn the job. You, you know, you've, you find out who the support people are and thank them for supporting you and so forth. But I sometimes jokingly answer that question by saying, my first day, I will call Bernie. And I will meet with uh, constituents that are in Washington, D.C., uh, you know, visiting. That establishes my priorities in the sense of I will ask to connect with people that I believe have been upholding the values that I share and that I care about. So those people, it's not what they say. It's what they've done. And also, um, my constituents are the most important people for me to, you know, it's not exactly a caucus, but be in a conversation with. They are the ones that need that representation in the Senate and aren't getting it. Thanks. All right. Thank you. That was Lisa Savage. And again, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. You just heard from Lisa Savage uh, and the other candidates that we have joining us today, Bree Kidman, Betsy Sweet, Tiffany Bond. They are all hoping to challenge Susan Collins for her Senate seat in November. Uh, also, we have the primaries coming up in July for the Democrats uh, and the Republicans. And uh, I'm also joined by my regular Elections 2020 series uh, regular guests, Professor Amy Freed, who just asked the last round of questions, and former State Representative Ralph Chapman. And Ralph, you are up next. Uh, thank you, Amy. And, and I am very impressed with the uh, candidates that we've heard from in the last uh, half, a little more than half an hour, and and I thank them very much for putting themselves forward uh, to engage in public service through achieving elected office. Uh, My question for for each of you is, relates to science and politics, which often clash, as we see today with some elected officials providing advice contrary to that of public health experts. For the past two decades, there's been much public discourse on climate change with differences between scientists and skeptics. So my question is, how would you, as an elected official, create mechanisms to enhance the use of science in public policy formation? And I'll let Amy Brown- uh, Do you want me to pull names? Yes. (laughs) All right, my little- Glad I made these things. Bree Kidman, you're up first. First again. All right. <laughs> it's not rigged. <laughs> so, um, 
Um, I think my answer is actually pretty simple. I would hire scientists. Um, so um, one of the things that um, that kind of strikes me about kind of the political machine as it is now is that a lot of the people who are making policy are, I mean, when we think about people who get elected, it's people who are good at fundraising and people who are good at advertising and people who are good at kind of portraying a particular image. It, it's it's a lot of performance art. And there are people who are good at political dynamics of, of working kind of in between the lines and figuring out who will do what. Um, I think we need more people with, with like lived experience um, making policy. So um, kind of across the board, what I wanna see is people who are close to the issue at hand, making the policy about it and leading those conversations. Um, so when we talk about climate policy, I wanna hire climate scientists to talk about climate policy. Um, you know, when we talk about racial justice, I wanna hire Racial justice activists. When we talk about um, healthcare, I want to hire people who are in the healthcare um, industry um, to to help guide and lead those decisions. That's the kind of people that I think um, should be making those decisions, and not you know lobbyists who are bribing us with tickets and handing us one-page fact sheets. Because um, that's um, you know more or less what we're seeing now is is lobbyists and um, will boil down kind of the. <laughs> this is what this bill really means. This is all you really need to know and kind of pass it off with a, with a smooth handshake. Um, and I think that's, um, it's lazy, <laughs> um, you know, and it's harder. It's um, right now we're, we have a climate in Washington where people physically can't in a lot of instances read the bills before they're voting on it. You know, you saw this last $2.5 trillion package um, and that legislation was hundreds of pages long wasn't available to the public until after the Senate had already started voting on it. And in fact, wasn't even done being written until less than 12 hours before the votes began. Um, I don't think that it was physically possible for most of the people who voted on that to read the whole thing. Um, so that's going off on another tangent and I apologize. But um, the short version is I think, you know, we need to keep people in our offices who are close to the issues and make sure that we're really um, taking the time to listen to what they say. All right. Thank you, Bree Kidman. Next up is Betsy Sweet. Thanks, Ralph, for the question. You know, I think it's uh, one of the tragedies of our the crumbling foundations of our system, in, is that we don't that all of a sudden science has become an opinion, you know, and that scientific fact has become something that we can have an opinion about, as opposed to this is the facts, and then we can have an opinion about what to do about it. So I think that you know, there's an old organizing adage that I have. Uh, stuck to for all my years, which is nothing about us without us. And it applies in a lot of different ways. But I think that is really true. We, as um, Bree said, we, we can't have scientific discussions without scientists. We can't, and I don't think scientific facts are debatable. I think what we do about them is debatable. And I think one of the things that I'm so excited about right now about climate science and the Green New Deal, which I'm a strong supporter of, is that for years, and you remember this, if you were for the environment, that was directly at odds with being for the economy. And those two things clashed. And now we are at a time when those two things can actually come together. I think the Green New Deal is gonna be the number one thing that pulls us out of this economic recession. And Maine is at the cutting edge, I think, of what we could do in terms of rebooting our economy and doing something about climate. We see that in New Zealand. They have just announced that the Green New Deal the version of the Green New Deal in New Zealand is what the prime minister is using to reboot the New Zealand economy after this pandemic. So I think we have to take the science, we have to take the money, the $20 billion that we're giving right now to fossil fuel companies with our tax dollars, redirect that into what scientifically is proven in terms of what has to happen in terms of our climate, 
but also in how we're going to do creative, we're going to use creative ways and new ways and new research into addressing our climate, our, our energy needs and everything else while we address the climate crisis. And it's not just a you know, climate emergency, it's a crisis. And I think every day about what it would be like if we treated the climate crisis and the impacts of that in terms of deaths and what's happening to our environment and report on it the way we've been reporting on the coronavirus. Thank you, Betsy Sweet. Uh, next, Tiffany Bond, please. Tiffany? Sorry, it wasn't unmuting, I apologize. That's okay. So, you know, whether or not we want it to be, science just is, right? We, we may not have proven our hypothesis. We might not be using the right stuff to describe it. We might be looking at the wrong piece of it. We might not have the words for what we're visualizing yet, um, but science is, and we're not paying enough attention to the fact that science doesn't care if we believe it or not. It, it's going to do its own thing. So we need to be people, be bringing in people who are engaged with that and on the front lines, being able to say, this is hypothesis. This is where we think it's going. This is proven. This is where we know it's going. And we need to be using that to inform our decisions. And one of the things that I think you've heard other candidates allude to is a lot of it has to do with time. I mean, if you're fundraising and you're trying to come up with a million dollars a year to keep your campaign for your next um, election going, so you need a million dollars and you take a couple weeks off a year and you, you have work 50 weeks a year, 40 hours a week. I mean, you have to raise $500 an hour just to make a million dollars a year. That doesn't really leave a whole lot of time for interacting with scientists or reading legislation or being informed on anything except cocktail parties where you can be raising 500 plus dollars an hour. It's, it's not... Uh, it's not consistent with what we need to the job to be doing. And one of the points that I've been making for a couple of years is we hire people who don't have time to do the job. We hire people who don't have time to read. We hire people who don't have time to phone a friend and say, hey, I don't understand this thing about privacy or technology or, or climate change. Can you please explain it to me? Because they just simply don't have the hours left over in a day. And we need to be hiring people that do that. We need to be hiring people that say, look, science is. We need to be working with science, and it's not just, you know, natural science for climate change, you know, economic sciences, social sciences, these things are all occurring, even if we don't have the right words for them, and we need to be working with the professionals to bring about more well-rounded beliefs, and I think a lot of that starts by getting people who have the money motivation out because they'll A, have the time and they'll be, be more likely to listen to experts instead of listening to pocketbooks. Thank you, Tiffany Bond. Lisa Savage, you are up next, please. Thanks. I, um, I think I have a little bit of a different perspective on this question, Ralph. I was a history major, and I know that there have been many uh, times in history when the people became so poor and so distressed economically and unable to um, just, you know, keep body and soul together that they became um, very... Uh, superstitious. They began to believe in things that were quite unscientific that might save them and rescue them from an untenable situation. And um, it very often toppled regimes or had a profound effect on the general philosophies that were guiding a society. I think we're watching that happen right now in the United States. I believe that people have been uh, very, very uh, economically distressed for decades now. And I also know that education has been 
underfunded my entire lifetime. Public education has never been funded adequately, in my opinion. Um, and I also know that when the No Child Left Behind Act passed, which um, preferenced reading and mathematics achievement uh, in, on standardized tests o overall, um, science education took a big back seat. It, it's, it's worked its way back under STEAM initiatives, I'm happy to say. I don't think social studies has rebounded in that way, but you know, as a history major, I'd like to see that happen. But I think that's what ha what's happening is that people are suspicious of authorities because authorities have not looked out for them. And it's hard for the people to believe in scientific experts when they seem to think that, gee, scientific experts seem to be part of this club where people can afford to get their teeth fixed and send their children to college, but I'm not in that club. So I'm not sure that those people really have my best interests at heart. Um, I'll tell an anecdote that has stuck with me for years. I was very ill and in the emergency room one night in a lot of pain. And I heard a conversation next to me where a woman was saying to someone else, oh, my daughter dropped out of school in ninth grade. They weren't teaching her anything and she wasn't learning anything. So, you know, she walked out. She never went back. I was too sick to lift my head up and say, well, aren't we glad that the doctors were waiting to see didn't feel that way. Um, but we've all read stories of, you know, revolutions that overturned the social order and window washers became the doctors and doctors became the window washers. I'm not naive enough to think that I'd be a, a good doctor. I'm, I'm not trained to be a doctor. I'm not a good climate scientist. What I am good at is evaluating information, doing research, listening to divergent points of view, and, you know, teasing out what does seem useful and, and real and actionable from an overload of information in, in the 21st century, certainly. So how to get the people's trust back in, let's listen to some climate scientists saying, we're about to go off the cliff here. I believe you're going to have to, the government, the U.S. Senate and uh, state government and local government are going to have to meet people's basic needs before they will be able to, again, uh, trust authorities. Thanks. Thank you all. That was uh, Lisa Savage. And I'm going to try to get to several questions um, from listeners and general topics that uh, our listeners care about. Also, maybe get Ralph and Amy in here again. And we only have 10 minutes left, so this is going to be kind of lightning round answers if we could do it that way. A listener in South, and I'll keep pulling names from my little pile here for the order. A listener in Southwest Harbor asks, if you are elected, what will you do to ensure that no main family goes bankrupt from medical bills? Lisa Savage, you are up first on this one. Well, I think that we need single-payer universal health care yesterday, several yesterdays ago, and that is the number one topic that I'm going to uh, fight for. The pandemic has not only exposed how dangerous it is to not have uh, to have individuals who don't have adequate health care, but to not have a national comprehensive health leadership at the helm in a public health crisis has been a, a disaster and very, very dangerous. So that is my number one issue, and I will uh, leave no stone unturned to see how we can get uh, that to do. People always say, how are you going to pay for it? Well, there's a great big fat military budget sitting right there gobbling up arguably 70% of the federal discretionary budget each year. I'd start there and then tax the rich. Thank you, Lisa Savage. Betsy Sweet? Yeah, I'd fight like hell for Medicare for all. Um, I just think it's time. It's way past time. And I think that, um, you know, every study has shown, even conservative studies, that it actually saves us money. 
not cost us money and it's a human right. It's not, and it's immoral to me that we would allow people to either not get the care that they need or um, whom I've met many of those people in Maine and or allow people to go bankrupt because they're taking care of themselves. So I would, that would, that is my number one issue as well. Thank you, Betsy. Sweet. Tiffany Bond. So I don't think um, Medicare for all is good enough. I think it puts a lot of stress on rural providers with them bearing the burden of the risk, but not a lot of, uh, not enough of a financial buffer to make them um, self-sustaining. Um, I'd really like to see us work through a much more comprehensive functional system than we have now. I think it'll end up being hybrid, but in the meantime, I really think that we should be offering a lot more access to Medicaid, whether it's uh, with buy-in for those who can afford it um, or expansion with those who cannot um, Medicaid in, in Maine is main care. So I think that we should be really expanding where we can. But ultimately, the problems that we're facing are part of it being an insurance-based system. So I think we really just have to rethink our relationship with insurance and insurance, if we want insurance as our model. And I don't know that we do. Thank you, Tiffany Bond and Bree Kidman. Uh, yeah, like Betsy and Lisa, I'm for Medicare for All. I think um, universal single payer is the answer and has been the answer for a long time. And, you know, for reasons of insurance money in the system uh, hasn't really been done yet. Um, uh, I think that no industry that makes a profit off of ensuring we get as little health care coverage for our dollars possible has a right to exist in this country. Um, I also think that um, we need to work towards forgiveness of existing medical debt. There are a lot of people who have already gone bankrupt um, as a result of this. It is uh, the leading cause of bankruptcy in this country. Um, and so, um, you know, with uh, taxing the rich, uh, taxing corporations, um, a modest tax on Wall Street speculation, I think that these things are all um, within the means of uh, the wealthiest country. Um, all right. Another, thank you, Bree Kidman. Another lightning round. If you were elected senator, would you hold regular town meetings with your constituents? First to uh, Bree Kidman. Absolutely. One in every county every year that I'm in office um, uh, with time for unscripted questions. Um, as little of me just kind of blathering at people as possible, as much of, um, you know, giving people an opportunity to hold me accountable. All right. Tiffany Bond. Um, I have children, so I'm slightly less ambitious than Brie. I do think it, there should be at least one a quarter. They should rotate throughout the state. Um, and in generally, I think that anyone who interacts with me knows that I'm um, very easy to get to to ask questions of anyway. So um, I try to make a lot of opportunities available. It shouldn't just be town halls. You shouldn't have to wait for that event to be able to ask a question of your, your elected officials. Thank you. Betsy Sweet. 100%. Um, I'm with Brie, one in every county, uh, every year while I'm elected. I think how we run is how we'll govern. Before the pandemic, I had 35 town halls all over the state. I had 50 more scheduled. Um, and of course, people can, uh, I'm, on, I'm on, now in the pandemic, I am on some kind of social media every day for 30 minutes asking any question anybody has, talking about whatever, have, so, whatever people have. But I think how we run is how we're going to govern. And we've had enough of uh, senators and candidates who don't want to participate in public forums. Thank you. And Lisa Savage. Yes, I think that town meetings are a particular thing that we have in New England. Our local democracy still operates in the form of a town meeting. People believe in it. Um, it's very invigorating to participate in, and I look forward to holding town meetings when I'm in the Senate. Yes. Okay, I have one last lightning round question, and then I'm going to see if Amy or Ralph have a last lightning round question, and that is, do you support the CMP corridor NECEC uh, project? 
And that goes first to Lisa Savage. No, and I held a press conference when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers held their public hearing for it. Um, and uh, that's on YouTube. You can um, watch and, and hear the um, alliance that we brought together to oppose the corridor. I've uh, never seen an issue that so unified Mainers as being against the CMP corridor, really, since I've lived here. Okay, Tiffany Bond, you are next. I do not like the CMP corridor, no. All right, that's good lightning round response. Betsy Sweet. <laughs> no, and talk about an example of money and politics. Uh, <laughs> we are seeing that in spades for this, so. Re Kidman. No, and I feel like I need to elucidate here that like this is greenwashing at its finest. The ads for this are kind of staggering. I've gotten so many pieces of mail and every time I'm watching a show on like Hulu or something and I get a commercial, it's um, at this point they're using the, the pandemic to advertise for why it's a good idea, but also they're talking about how this is, this is clean energy when in actuality so much money went into making sure that a net carbon impact study wasn't done. Um, and that I think speaks for itself. All right, we literally have four minutes left. So these are gonna be very quick lightning round questions if Amy or Ralph have one. Amy does, Amy Freed, Professor Amy Freed, one of our regulars here on the elections 2020 edition of the Maine Currents. Go ahead, Amy. Okay, thanks. Um, uh, the incumbent Senator Susan Collins, uh, one of the ways that she is campaigning is, is portraying herself as very bipartisan, very pragmatic. You see this in general, also in her talking about the Paycheck Protection Program. What's missing in this? What would you want to highlight? All right. First up, we will hear from Betsy Sweet. Uh, actual assistance to Maine working families. It hasn't happened. It's a bunch of, it's a lie that it's um, gone to the people who need it. So um, I think we have to put families and working people first. Great. Thank you. Tiffany Bond. Well, she uses independent in all of her ads, but it's really hard to be an independent when you're actually contrast, contrasted with somebody who is an independent. So, I mean, I think her legislative record just, it's not independent. It's not bipartisan objectively when you compare her to somebody who is both of those things. Lisa Savage? I think, again, just need to look at her voting record. She was the architect of the legislation that undercut the U.S. Postal Service, for instance. And it's just, it's not what she says, it's what she does. Bree Kidman? All of the above said before me, and also um, just a complete lack of accountability. You know, she says all these things, does another a lot of the time, and doesn't show up for town halls or multi-candidate forums, despite being inv invited to them, um, to answer for any of it. She's never really any, there's no pushback on Susan Collins. It's all what she can afford to put out into the world. And, um, you know, when you don't get questions about it, it's really easy to, to portray an image of yourself that doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. Okay. And one last very fast lightning round. Ralph Chapman, do you have a question. Sure. On election integrity, uh, you all like uh, ranked choice voting, but are there other aspects of our national election systems that you would like to uh, see uh, strengthened or implemented? Betsy Sweet. Public financing of elections and uh, mail-in ballots for everybody during this time. Tiffany Bond. Uh, I think keeping it on paper, keeping it accessible, keeping it low tech with the mail-in is a good ways to go. And I also really think that we need to have more mechanisms for average people to run. Lisa Savage. Voting by mail, I think, is going to be really key, uh, especially in the public health crisis we're in. And also, I would say that the Electoral College needs to go. A popular vote is much more responsive to what the people want to see. And Bree Kidman. 
I agree with all that everybody has said before. I also, um, I have to voice a little bit of a worry about vote by mail in that like with the post offices, uh, with the post offices funding kind of in crisis, I'm a little bit worried about ballots getting out to people in time and ballots getting back in time. So I think we need improved tracking on mail ballots um, to make sure that everybody who wants to vote um, is counted. All right, we have time for a 30 second last word from each of you. Uh, up first, Bree Kidman, you again. Um, so thank you so much for having me here today and for having all of us here today. Um, I would be happy if any of the people who were at this forum, uh, you know, wound up in the position at the end of all of this. Um, I think it's important to really think about who's showing up to be uh, held accountable, who's showing up uh, to, to talk side by side with other candidates in this race, um, who's showing up to kind of tell it to you straight and really um, uh, give you the unvarnished <laughs> sort of version of, of what we think, how we feel and how we intend to do this job. Um, you know, I'm in this to kind of change the job interview process and to make sure that we uh, we can do it better and I think that we can so okay thank you. thank you yeah I don't mean to rush people but we literally yeah. have like 30 seconds each so I don't want anybody to get shortchanged Lisa Savage we're in it to win it and our website is Lisa for spelled out for main m-a-i-n-e dot org this is a volunteer powered organization it's a big team we'd love to have people join us and I'm not that interested in moving the conversation left I think we should win this election Thank you. Uh, okay, thank you. And Tiffany Bond? Sure, I'm the only one of the candidates that's still working on ballot. Um, a pandemic hit in the middle of my collection period. So please help. Go on uh, bond, the number four, dot me, volunteer, or find me on Twitter. Um, if you would like to help me collect just 10 signatures, that really helps. I'm not that far off from making ballot, but I really do need a bunch of people to maybe get me five or 10 folks to get across that line. Thank you. Thank you. And last word, Betsy Sweet. It's decision time. We have as a state a chance to really change not just who we elect from Maine, but to change what happens in the country. We need to reimagine how we are going to go forward. We have this incredible opportunity to elect someone who is different. And I think um, this is the opportunity that we have had. We've not had an opportunity like this in decades. So we are in this together. We win this together. Please go to BetsySuite.com and help us. We're going to pull where this is tortoise and hare, and we know how that turns out. Okay, thank you very much. So there you heard from several of the people who hope to challenge Susan Collins for her Senate seat in November. Thank you all for being with me, Bree Kidman, Betsy Sweet, Lisa Savage, Tiffany Bond, as well as my regular guests for the election 2020 edition of Maine Currents, former State Representative Ralph Chapman and Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department. At the University of Maine, you've been listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. You can catch this Elections 2020 edition of Maine Currents on the third Tuesday of each month. We also, at four o'clock, we also have our regular edition of Maine Currents still on the second Tuesday of the month. And we tape this via Zoom on Friday, May 15th. Our locally produced news and public affairs programs are available on our website, weru.org. You can catch the archives there within a few days after the time the program airs. And you can send news information, tips, ideas, suggestions to me at news at weru.org. Keep it tuned here to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at weru.org.